0: All right, this is a special skeptics, doubters, and unbelievers Q&A. The idea here is to take your questions as a skeptic, non-believer, doubter, treat it with respect, treat treat you with dignity, and give you the best answer that I can at least. I can't promise to have all the answers. Um, I never can, and that's understandable. If anybody promises to have all the answers, then (laughs) they're going to break that promise. But I will try to give you something at least helpful, something to point you to the goodness of the truth of Christianity that I believe is not only good in the sense that it pragmatically helps people in their lives, but that it's true and that salvation is really found in Jesus Christ, that there really is a God who loves you and who has provided for you for forgiveness of your sins and for eternal life. I want to encourage you to take one more step closer to God. If you're a doubter, to see that there's light at the end of that tunnel, that you can have your faith restored and strengthened, all those good things. So, so these are these. This is the Q and use occasionally where I just want to take questions from the live chat that are specifically from the perspective of the doubter, the skeptic, the non-believer. You guys can load your questions in right now. The first question I always have ready to go, and that comes from Lily Wang, who says, "In Genesis 22: 2, God tested Abraham by asking him to sacrifice Isaac as a burnt offering. How can God ask men to do something that is sinful, and how could Abraham obey God's direction to sin?" So I, I think this is a, a, again, I want to treat these questions with respect, right? I, I'm going to offer a simple answer, but then I want to give you an explanation of that answer so we can come back to the simplicity of it. And you'll see, hopefully it'll make sense. I would say that my response to this, this question is to say it wasn't actually sinful for Abraham to obey God or for God to command Abraham that it wasn't sinful in the first place. There's a few reasons for this. Uh, so from a Christian perspective, if you're going to do, you know, Lily, you're either a believer or a doubter, or you're asking this for someone else. Uh, but from the perspective of, let's say that Christianity is true. Let's say God exists. Let's say that he really is the creator of all things. Okay. Because you, you can't ask this question without that in place. Because the hypothetical, even if you're a non-Christian, <laughs> the hypothetical is based on the idea that that God really did do this. Okay, so God exists. He's really the creator of all things. And this has strong implications about a few things, about morality and also about God's, you might say God's rights. That's probably a clumsy way to put it, but I don't know what else, what other term to use here. But God is entitled in a sense. It's his creation. He made all things. And therefore God can do what he chooses with his creation, that that is actually a right, a, a proper role that he has to do what he wants with his creation, including with killing or making alive. That is, God can simply do that because of his role as creator of all things. There's another aspect of which is God's morality. God is the grounding of all morality. And our, and this is my understanding of this stuff, okay? My best understanding, our duties, like our requirement to do what's right, is based largely on what God tells us to do because of his role and his his grounding of all reality. Now his his goodness is grounded in his nature, but when he gives us commands, we're then obligated to do those things. God tells you, I want you to do this. You have to do it. There's a sense in which we understand this with parenting. Uh, if, a, if a parent tells a kid, um, go to your room, <laughs> then there's a moral obligation that the kid has. Now, it's not an um, unbreakable moral obligation or that it can't be trumped with anything else. Perhaps the parent is being highly abusive, but, right, but I'm talking normal, healthy family stuff. A parent says, go to your room. The kid's supposed to go to their room. Parent says, hey, pick the thing up that you just dropped. Stop poking your sister. There's a moral obligation that the kid has to obey the parent in that in that situation. And that this is so much more true in such a bigger way when we're talking about God commanding humans to do things. So this well-known story of Abraham offering Isaac, right? Or attempting to offer Isaac. That this, this is a command from God. Um, when God commands you to do something it is morally acceptable to do the thing, even if apart from a command of God, it would be unacceptable to do that very thing. Now, this might sound like, oh, well, this is special pleading and this kind of thing, but it's really not. You do We do this all the time, even in our, in our current laws that we think are good and are right. If you ever come to a red light and a cop is waving you through because they're dealing with an accident or something, there's a cop there waving you through the red light. You are running a red light, but you're doing it under the authority of this cop who has the ability, to tell you to go through the light. How does this work? Well, the same rule that makes it so you can't run a red light, that same authority, governmental authority, that same authority is being extended by the cop in a special circumstance to say, okay, in this case, do it. There are specific reasons why this situation is different. God commands Abraham to offer Isaac. There are specific reasons why this situation is radically different than any other time someone would offer up or sacrifice a child or a person to a deity. That's completely different. And that's actually how the Bible couches this as a one time, very different scenario than any other time in which this sort of thing has ever happened before. So this is pretty significant. Um, okay, just checking on this. So the um, let me talk more about how I, how I explain this. Okay, so some would respond to this. Um, I can feel your response saying, so you're saying might makes right, might makes right. And, and no, nothing I've said is remotely like might makes right. Might makes right is the idea that the the most powerful person can simply take charge. And because they can, they have some sort of moral right to take charge. And that's not what we're saying at all. I'm not basing this on God's ability to control people, but on God's proper authority over his creation. That's, that's, that's one of the, one of the rungs of the ladder and the other rung of the ladder to climb up to this conclusion <laughs> So God has authority over creation, and God is also the the source of our moral imperatives. And that source is the one who said, "I want you to do this thing." Abraham, go and offer your son, whom you love. That's significant. That is significant. Now, this this immediately r- brings up a lot of scary concerns, right? So the the the. Sc- In fact, last time I answered a question like this, multiple atheists made videos and wrote articles about it. No joke, right? Um, and the reason is because they're they're partly because they're, they're scoffing okay that's just reality but another part of it is that they're genuinely worried about real religious weirdos who've done psychotic and horrible things in the name of religion and that i've just answered in a way that that could be taken to mean so if god tells you to go kill people you're going to go kill them when normally it would be wrong to do that and th- this is this is a, um this is a challenging thing to work through because either you affirm God doesn't have the authority, right, over, over life and death, which I can't, I can't reject that as a Christian, or I think as any reasonable theist, you can't reject that. Or I am going to be embracing this idea, or at least paint it as embracing this idea that people going out and killing in the name of God is something I approve of. But that's, here's the difference. Killing in the name of God is not actually the same as God actually commanding somebody to kill. These are very different things because the vast majority of anybody who's ever killed in the name of God certainly didn't have God telling them to do so. And people of all religions would agree with that, right? And atheists would think it was in every case. (laughs) So the hypothetical of if God tells you to do this, yeah. So what do I do um, to prevent crazy people from from, uh, doing crazy things? Uh, If someone out there right now, you're watching this video and you're thinking, hey, I think maybe God's telling me to offer my son too. And you're getting, and probably you have delusions of religious grandeur going on in your life. I'm being honest with you here. Um, this is not happening to you. I can say that with a lot of confidence, actually. And that's and it's not because of my own bias. It's because of when you look, you back up and you look at the whole story of Abraham and Isaac, you realize that one of the lessons is you don't sacrifice your kids to me. Let me explain. Let me explain why people have misunderstood this passage, I think. Not everybody, but many people have. So, first off, if you're feeling tempted to do something like this or feeling that maybe God's showing you to do something like this, You're not Abraham, okay? That was a one-time thing, never happened again in the Bible. And it was actually argued against in the Bible. We'll get to that in a second. But also Abraham had a number of powerful experiences that showed him that it was really God speaking. It wasn't his own delusions. It wasn't his own confusion. It wasn't something he was um, coming up with in his own mind where it was an obsessive religious thought that he started thinking God was telling him where it was just sort of an internal voice kind of thing. It wasn't like that at all. Abraham had many previous miracles like the birth of Isaac, he had visitations from God that were literal visitations in, in his very presence. And it wasn't only Abraham that experienced it. So if Abraham was crazy, he could have hallucinated that. But no, there were other people there too. Abraham had real confirmation that God had spoken to him. There was many other things. Read the full story of Abraham in Genesis. That backdrop gives credence to the idea that, yeah, Abraham could really believe this was truly God speaking to him. But also, if you, if you think that it's okay to go out and, and kill people in, in the name of God, like because you have some internal voice telling you to do so. You, you're you definitely not hearing from God, but um, part of the revelation of this, part of the whole point of this thing with Abraham was to tell them never to sacrifice their kids. Zoom out a little bit further than just the story of Abraham and ask yourself this, where does this fit in God's revelation of how he wants people to, to sacrifice to him, right? God calls Abraham sacrifice. This is something other Canaanite deities did. And it was definitely a huge test of faith, that's for sure. Abraham goes out to do it and God stops him and provides a ram. What does he do next? Well, next, when they become a nation, when the exodus happened, he gives them rules. He says, you owe me your firstborn sons, just like Isaac was Abraham's firstborn. And he says, but you will not sacrifice them to me. You'll redeem them with an animal offering. What's the foundation of that? Abraham offering Isaac and having this ram show up as the alternative to sacrificing his his son. God is changing the way they do religion because they're all moving from paganism into judaism paganism into monotheism sacrificing kids into no you're not allowed to do that this is part of the message of the abraham stories you're not allowed to do that to see this you could actually look at scripture let me read some stuff to you so deuteronomy 18 it says when you come into the land this is verses 9 through 12 that the lord your god is giving you you shall not learn to follow the abominable practices of those nations there shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or dot da- or his daughter as an offering. Anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer or a charmer or, t- or a medium or a necromancer that's contacting the dead and messing with that or one who inquires of the dead, right? For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord, your God is driving them out before you. Not, not contacting you That's kind of an important one for uh, today. At any rate, you'll not do this. God tells him you won't do this, right? He gives them instructions. Yeah, you owe me your firstborn, but you'll use an animal instead. Abraham did the same thing. I want your willingness to follow me in all things, but I'm telling you this is off the table. I don't want you to do this. Right. Deuteronomy twelve thirty one says, "You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. For every abominable thing that the Lord hates, they've done for their gods. For they even burn their sons and their daughters in the fire to their gods." So I, I I would I would say then if God tells you to do what Abraham did, that wasn't God. Why someone? Why at my door? Go away. I'm busy. <laughs> at any rate, I'm checking the ring app. Yeah. I, wherever I live, you got to have eyeballs on your house. <laughs> at any rate, um, <clears throat> the uh, the point is that um, should a person be willing to offer anything to God? It is, it is his rightful position to call for anything, it is rightful authority, and our moral duties do come from his commands. So in a sense, yes. Does that create religious crazies that are willing to go out and just start slaughtering people wrongly? Um, God has given us a bunch of stuff in scripture to prevent that from happening so that a well grounded Christian who understands scripture wouldn't be doing those things um, and, and would be protected against those sorts of delusions. Even... Even from hearing them supposedly from God, so that the uh, the warnings in the Old Testament are: if a prophet comes to you and they're giving you advice to do something contrary to what's written here, don't follow them. So even if it's supposedly a voice from God, yet it conflicts with statements like "Don't sacrifice your kids to me," then yeah, don't do it. Now Abraham didn't have that Deuteronomic Deuteron- Deuteronomic law. I know what I'm trying to say. Um, so you know that came afterwards. So he doesn't have that in place. Abraham's learning something about God as he goes to sacrifice Isaac. He's learning something about God. Yeah, I don't want you to do that. But there's tons more to talk about with the Abraham-Isaac story. I won't get into all of it, but I'll say this. It's a strange story. It definitely gets your attention. It may seem barbaric, but some people conveniently forget that God refused to let it go through and replaced and turned it into a prophetic event. That's right. Even Abraham in Genesis 22 saw it as prophecy. He, He did all this. And then he said, in the Mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Never describe what it was. That phrase, it shall be provided. But God, Jehovah Jireh, the Lord, the provider is going to provide something. Where? Mount Moriah, right? In the mountains of Moriah. So he's there at ancient Jerusalem in that region of Jerusalem before any of them were actually living there, before they're inhabiting the land. And what will be provided? Something just like what just happened. Abraham's offering Isaac is a picture of Jesus. From the book of Genesis, thousands of years ago, so long before the birth of Christ, before the gospel had been understood, we have this incredible detailed picture of Jesus Christ. Let me talk to you about some of the details so you can see how amazing this is. And then we'll get all your guys' questions. So it's a father offering his son. In Genesis 22, 2, we see that it's um, Abraham is told, you know, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. And he's going to go Where is land of Moriah here we are at, at the area of Jerusalem and offer him there as a burn offering on the, on one of the mountains which I shall tell you he doesn't let him do it but guess what there is a father who takes his only begotten son to that same location and he actually does offer him for our sins now Jesus offers himself it's not a child sacrifice some more barbaric thing it's Jesus taking the place of our sin for a substitutionary atonement basically um, I know I'm using fancy words there but you can look them up and it's it's amazing it's how he achieves our salvation the son, Isaac, was born of a miraculous birth, just like Jesus was born of a virgin birth. Uh, th- Isaac was the son of the promise, this long awaited, really long delayed promise that God gave Abraham. And then Isaac shows up and he's like, You're the promised son. Jesus was the ultimate promised son of the lineage of Abraham, the ultimate fulfillment of this, a long awaited son. The father is the one who carries the fire up the mountain while they're walking up the mountain. Abraham, it says, had the fire in his hand, and Isaac, he had the wood and fire often represents judgment in scripture jesus experienced the suffering of our judgment and jesus himself though right the father is giving that out and then jesus is carrying the wood up up the the hill so to speak to calvary blows my mind uh there was a three-day journey genesis 22 4 says it was a three-day journey and so for three days, it was as though his son was dead. And for three days, Christ was in fact dead. The son submits, it seems. Isaac was probably old enough to fight back and he didn't fight back. Um, now that's, there's there's a, a bit of conjecture there, but we don't have any anything in there in, in where you might expect it, some, some fighting going on there. The son seems to be yielding in, to some extent. And Jesus voluntarily, that much more voluntarily went forward to offer his own life for us. This passage, Genesis twenty-two, is the first biblical use of the word worship, or of the word love. Think about that for a second. It's again in Jerusalem or at the Jerusalem area, mountains of Moriah. A ram takes Isaac's place because Isaac is not actually sacrificed; never intended to be. Jesus is the one who is sacrificed for us. So that's just this this beautiful, beautiful thing. Uh, the irony of offering one through whom the future people will come is not lost on me at least. So Isaac is the one who Abraham was told, all your offspring will come through Isaac. You're gonna to have tons and tons of kids and grandkids and great grandkids through Isaac. Now go offer him. Do you do you see that? That, that this is like such a, a test of Abraham's faith. So Abraham, according to Hebrews, believed that God was going to raise Isaac from the dead after the offering took place because he thought God has to do this. So he was thinking of a death and resurrection of his son that's amazing. But what's cool about this is also that Abraham is going to offer the son through whom all the offspring will come. And the father offered Jesus through whom we all become children of God by that offering. Um, it's just beautiful. Um, let's see. It's also said to be prophetic. Like I said, in Genesis 22, eight, Abraham said, God will provide himself a lamb for the burnt offering. That was uh, kind of a, for himself a lamb that's kind of a prophetic moment the ram then shows up um, but then genesis 22 14 i guess i'll put this on your screen so abraham called the name of that place the lord will provide as it is to this day on the mount said to this day on the mount of the lord it shall be provided and what is the it again you could say well god will provide things <laughs> in general um except there is a specific provision in the passage that is someone else to die in your place um powerful stuff there's there's other things we could talk about there as well it's amazing I I think the answer to your question is it was not sin because God commanded it had God not commanded it it would have been a horrible sin just like there's so many things we can do with authority that that without that authority it would be very wrong to do it uh, a government will lock someone in prison for 10 years. Locking someone in prison for 10 years or in in bars and locking them up, that, that that is a horrible, horrible, immoral crime. Unless, of course, you've gone through the justice system and you have the authority of all the government. And of course, if there's a moral right behind what they do. But God has both of those for us. He has his moral right in the goodness of the story he's telling. He has the thing he's calling Abraham to do. And Abraham has a right to obey, has a rightness in his obedience to God because God's commands we are obligated to obey. Just like running a red light when a cop waves you through, is entirely appropriate. All right, let's go to question number two. This is from Get It, who says, Deuteronomy 22, 13 to 21. Um, That's the verse reference. Uh, Why were the women to be stoned to death if they didn't present proof of virginity? Was it the same for men? Let's look at this passage. Deuteronomy 22, 13 to 21. So Abraham called the name of that place... (laughs) I, just, I definitely did not get to Deuteronomy. Let me go there again. That worked. Um, let's read the passage and we'll ask, ask your question again and try to answer it. So 13 to 21. If any man takes a wife and goes into her and then hates her and accuses her of misconduct and brings a bad name upon her saying, I took this woman and when I came near her, I did not find in her evidence of virginity. Then the father of the young woman and her mother shall take and bring out the evidence of her virginity and the elders to the elders of the city in the gate. And the father of the young woman uh, shall say to the elders, I gave my daughter to this man to marry and he hates her. And behold, he has accused her of misconduct saying, I did not find in your daughter evidence of virginity. And yet this is the evidence of my daughter's virginity. And they shall spread the cloak before the elders of the city. Then the elders of that city shall take the man and whip him. And they shall find him a hundred shekels of silver and give them to the father of the young woman because he has brought a bad name upon a virgin of Israel and she shall be his wife and he may not divorce her all his days. Uh, But if the thing is true, that evidence of virginity was not found in uh, the young woman, then they shall bring out the young woman to the door of her father's house and the men of her city shall stone her to death with stones, because she has done an outrageous thing in Israel by whoring in her father's house, so you shall purge the evil from your midst. Um, Okay, let's talk about the questions here. So there's um, probably a dozen questions that are in your guys' minds. Um, Why were the women to be stoned to death if they didn't present proof of virginity? Um, we We should say this instead, I think to be more clear on the passage. The women were to be stoned if if in fact they find proof that they've been sleeping around lied about their virginity got married under that lie and then both bring sexual immorality onto the the guilt of sexual immorality onto the people as well as threatening the very like genetic um lineage of the people of israel Um, Whereas the tribes and the lands are all set aside for those specific tribes, according to prophecy and stuff like that. And so it's it's all, those are big deals. Okay, so here's our our modern ears hear it. And we go, oh, they are stoning them for not being virgins. And then we we get uppity about it. And we don't realize that one, sexual morality is actually a really serious sin. And two, this was a fraud done in relation to marriage and offspring and kids and lineage and all that other stuff. So that was a big deal. If she was guilty, she was guilty of a very different thing than if the man was guilty in this scenario. If he was guilty, he was guilty of falsely accusing a woman. So he got whipped, he had he got a, a financial penalty, and he got publicly shamed. If she was guilty, she wasn't guilty of falsely accusing somebody, he, she was guilty of something much worse. You catch that? Um, so why were the was the woman to be stoned to death if they didn't present proof of virginity? Was it the same for men? Uh, for men, there it wasn't physically possible. What is the proof of virginity, right? I'm not going to get into all the details. If you don't know what this proof of virginity is, you you can figure that out on your own. I'm not going to educate people on the medical side of things like that, but but that's the idea. Um, this is not physically possible with men as it is with with women. There's a there's a difference there. I, I it's just the reality of of life that pushes that upon us. We don't have that proof possible. The um, uh the issues of sexual immorality of fidelity in marriage and of the knowing who you're who's, who the dad is right you always know who the mom is right she's the one pregnant you always know that you need to know who the dad is and the only way to know that is if there's fidelity and so um so those things were all really important, especially in Israel during that time, yeah, we tend to think. Nowadays in our culture the way we are we think if a woman is is senses any shame for not being a virgin Then then the, the real shame is on the person who brought it up um, While I don't want to sit here and just and just shame to death People who have committed sexual immorality who've been sleeping around who've done those things as many of my audience have I want you to recognize that that actually is a grievous sin before the eyes of God and it's a huge deal and in our culture It's not a big deal But think back to other cultures that you've you've heard of growing up who did horrible things and thought it was no big deal right they did horrible things and you can think of lots of examples in history of people doing they did what they did they treated people how they did what and they didn't think it was a big deal yet those same groups would have seen the the errors of other cultures and said that's so immoral and horrible the real wisdom and real moral maturity is seeing the errors and sin in your own culture that are embraced by your culture and being able to understand that it's wicked and evil including the stuff that you've done yourself and there's there's no help in trying to hide from it there's only help in running to jesus to receive grace and forgiveness and the acceptance and the cleansing that comes from him right your life is not over if you've done these things right this is the the law here that says stone her that is meant to drive you to Christ so that you see how serious your sin is, so that you get driven to Christ. Is is uh, fornication and, and stuff just as big of a deal with men? Absolutely, 100%. It's just that the laws of physics allow you to know who the mother is every time, but not the father. And so it, it changes, you know, the way you handle things, at least in the Old Testament law. Let's go to the next question. This is from Emily Lewis who says, Hi Mike, why do Christians try to keep all 10 commandments to the word except the fourth one? I hope this doesn't sound rude. Yeah, this is a good question. Um, so when you when you look at this this question, I'm going to offer an answer that I think is unpopular, but I think is biblically sound. That is that we are not under the law and that includes the 10 commandments. However, that does not mean we don't have any moral commitments that agree very much with many things found in the law and in the Ten Commandments. But by saying I'm not under the law, including the Ten Commandments, it means that these are not exactly, bindingly, my rules, but that there are, there's lots of overlap in God's ultimate moral truths that do apply to me as a Christian today. Um I don't know why more people don't agree with me on this particular one. So I've, I've probably haven't heard all their arguments and maybe there's something specific to be said there. Um, but let's, let's just, let's just run through some of these together. Um, oh, whoa, moving my things around. Okay. So the, um, oh, just a second. I'm struggling with finding my what i'm clicking on um the the basic principle of not being under the law is something that christians would why by and large just widely agree with like yeah we're not under the law i agree we're not under the law but then when it comes to the 10 commandments they think but those are for everybody right those are for everybody and largely as you read them you think yeah i mean that sounds like you know don't don't murder people (laughs) like that sounds like something for everybody don't commit adultery don't steal that that all sounds like things that you don't want to you don't want to do and I'd agree you don't wanna do them, but theologically, where are the 10 commandments given in scripture for all people, all nations of all time? And the fourth commandment is one of them in particular that stands out as evidence that God doesn't require this of all people, both in the old and new Testament. Let me, let's run through the 10 real quick. So you shall have no other gods before God. Okay, 100% agree. You shall not make any graven images for, for worshiping, bowing down to as part of your worship, like that sort of thing as part of receiving worship that, yeah, don't do that. Okay. I think that totally applies today. And we also see that these are taught, right? The first two commandments are those things that God judges all nations for in the old Testament. Like he doesn't just judge Israel for that. He judges all nations for that. When you, when you, when you, here's how, you know, you look at the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, you look at the prophets. And when they speak of foreign nations who are not under the law, do they get on them for these issues? Yes. Both of those issues. Let's take the third one. So that that shows what? That God judges people not under the law by that same policy. And when you're in the New Testament, Christians who are not under the law, are they told the same things? Yep. No other gods before God? Yep. Even things like um, covetousness is idolatry, right? Things like that. Uh, Thou shalt not make any graven images? Absolutely. They destroy their idols. They burn their magic books, all that kind of thing. Um, the The third one, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Yep. That's something we're still told to, to honor God, to sanctify the Lord Jesus in your hearts, all these different things. New Testament still applies that. Um, I'm going to skip number four. We'll come back to the Sabbath in a second. Number five, honor your father and mother. Yep, Ephesians specifically calls it out. Honor your father and mother even ties it to the 10 commandments, which is the first commandment with promise that you may live long on the earth. So Ephesians calls that out specifically and applies it to us. You see, the commandments can apply to us. That doesn't mean we are under them. We look at how, through the lens of Christ, does this apply to me? Instead of thinking, I'm just simply under that commandment. I don't know how people have the 10 commandments, theologically, I'm not sure. Maybe there's an answer here, I just haven't heard. How people have the, just the 10 commandments, but then they have none of the rest of the law. And they start chopping the law up like that. And they say, well, it's moral law versus civil law. And it, it doesn't really work when you when you actually try to go to the law and figure out what's moral versus civil like that. It's, it's, it's not like the 10 commandments are all moral and the rest is all civil. It's more complicated than that. It's okay for the 10 commandments to be more complicated than that as well. Sorry if I'm getting, I'm talking past anybody here. I don't mean to, I'm just trying to cram a lot of answers into a short time here. Um, So you shall not kill. Okay. That's specifically committing murder. Okay. Don't commit murder. Um, It's not that all killing in every circumstance is always wrong. Uh, Don't commit adultery. Yep, we're we're told not to do those things as well. Don't steal, right? Ephesians, right? Colossians, don't steal. Instead, work hard, save up so you can have to give to others. Go above and beyond even. Um, Don't bear false witness, right? Don't lie. Stop lying to one another, scripture says in the New Testament as well. And don't covet. Now, these are all things, except for number four, they're all things God judges all the nations for. He has Old Testament prophets that judge all nations for these things. He has... And given us New Testament scripture that tells us repeatedly to do these things or observe these things and to even go next level on them as well. But not number four. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Now, there are some Christians who observe the Sabbath and they're believers, and I don't divide over them, uh, over this issue with them. Um, not at all. And if you wanted to go to church on the Sabbath, I don't really care. Now they care, okay? They care quite a bit. But I, I, my understanding of the theology here is this Sabbath commandment is never placed on foreign nations. Of all the things that Babylon is judged for, right? Of the Canaanites that they're judged for, all the things that these different, the Syrians and the different groups, all the ites, right? All the different groups are judged for in scripture and we're given many lists of things they've done wrong. It's never violated the Sabbath, never Never is a foreign nation judged in the Old Testament for violating the Sabbath. Yet Israel is big time judged, big time judged for violating not only the Sabbath day, but the Sabbath year, the farming year where they let the land rest for a year. So, you know, for 400 years, they didn't do it. So then they end up 70 years in, um, uh, in captivity. So the land can get its rest in Jeremiah. That's I'm getting, I'm getting, I'm I'm too many things. I'm saying too many things, huh? I'm sorry. Let me just say this. Israel big time judged for violating the Sabbath. Other nations, never, never. Now we see, uh, you know, the Sabbath happening, being, being sort of acknowledged in Genesis, God rested on the seventh day, but we don't see it commanded until Exodus when God calls his people out and then gives them rest. And this is the people who are working so hard, backbreaking labor all the time. And he gives them a day of rest and it does tie back to God's creation in seven days. But God never commanded it for all people. Now go to the New Testament. You're a Christian. You're not under the law. You're still observing the same moral principles that God has always had for all people of all time, but you're not under the law. What about the Sabbath? The New Testament never tells Christians to observe the Sabbath, and it makes it clear in Romans 14, despite all the arguments I've heard otherwise, it makes it clear that we do not have to observe the Sabbath. I say, and I want to be careful here, I say don't have to scripture doesn't say don't observe the sabbath or that observing the sabbath is bad it doesn't it just says you don't have to which would mean that this commandment is not binding upon us let's look at romans 14. um i'm going to read through a lot of stuff here so i'll move quickly as for the one who's weak in faith that is a reference to a person who has maybe um more restrictive rules because they don't have a sense of confidence that god will allow them to do something like maybe eating pork, right? They don't have that confidence. So they have like their faith is kind of weak on that. So they, so they stay away from that. Um, Or maybe on the Sabbath, they have a similar issue. So as for, um, where did I just click? Oh, okay. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. It doesn't say what they believe. It just says here, they eat only vegetables. And this is the condition to like, just don't argue about it. Hey, it, it, Christian, these are things to not argue about. You you have a conviction about the food you eat. You feel like you can't eat this, You can't go. Then don't don't. Let's not let's not argue about it. Let's not divide over it. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. Hey, Christian, you see a person who's let's say take the Sabbath for example. They're observing on Saturday, right? They observe it maybe even Friday night till Saturday evening. They same thing. They go, hey, I'm going to observe the Sabbath same time as the Jews traditionally do, and I'm going to be going to a church on that day as well and gathering with others who do. Here's the rule for, for those of us who say, I don't have that requirement. Do not despise them. Don't look down on them. Don't despise them. Don't get mad at them for it. Don't feel like there's some, just accept them as your brothers and sisters and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats for God has welcomed him. Now applying that same principle to the Sabbath, it would be don't let the Christian who um, follows Sabbath rules, don't don't pass judgment on the one who doesn't like you want to do this that's fine you can do it you can do it under the lord enjoy it don't pass judgment on others over this issue now why am i applying this to the sabbath it's obviously about food let me read on and we'll see why because paul applies the same principles to sabbath in just two verses who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another it is before his own master that he stands or falls and he will be upheld for the lord is able to make him stand one person esteems one day as better than another while another esteems all days alike each one should be fully convinced in his own mind the one who observes the day that would be observing the sabbath is a cat is a subcategory of observing the day this 100 percent applies to the sabbath the one who observes the day right a person who observes sabbath is observing a day that they esteem different than others this is a hundred percent applicable The one who observes the day, observes it in honor of the Lord, right? Honor the Lord by observing the Sabbath. That's what they're doing. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again that he might be Lord of both the living and of the dead and of the living? Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or why do you despise your brother? These are the two categories. Hey, are you are observing the Sabbath? Stop passing judgment on Christians who don't. Are you um, not observing the Sabbath? Stop despising Christians who do. Do you see the point here is unity? Now, that means that as a Christian, you're, well, oh, Mike, if the point is unity, why are you teaching that we should Um, that that we don't have to observe the Sabbath. Shouldn't you just get on the fence on the issue and say, I don't know, guys, I'll leave it up to you. Uh, Well, the Bible doesn't get on the fence. The Bible makes it clear. You don't have to observe the Sabbath. That's the clear teaching. But you can, and you can do it under the Lord. And then the major issue is don't cause internal division in the body of Christ over it. That can only be true if we are not under the law, including the Ten Commandments. Now, I still don't murder, still honor your parents, still all those things. But those are moral truths in the law. They're not actually just something that's binding because they're in the Ten Commandments. I, I hope that makes sense. Every time I explain this, somebody um, makes videos and doesn't understand what I'm saying. So I did my best. Um, I'll, later, I'll be like, oh, I should have said this. I hope that helps. Um, let's talk about uh, Bostonator43's question. He says, or she says, does God have blood? If not, isn't that Nestorian? Um, does God have blood? Yes and no. Um, I, I think the answer to this question is simply God did not have blood until he took on human flesh, human form. He came in flesh and blood and then he had blood. So we've got God coming and now God has blood. The, the blood of Jesus, okay, Jesus is God and Jesus has blood and that's God's blood but it's not the blood of, of divine essence. Maybe I'm going to try to be careful with my terminology here. It's easy to stumble and get things wrong when you're trying to define things here. Um, but I don't think, I think we we should understand clearly God didn't have blood until the incarnation. The blood God has is only the second person of the Trinity, jesus and is only a result of the incarnation but because he's truly man he truly has blood and he truly spills his blood for mankind and so um scripture hints at this when it suggests that god uh, redeemed us by his blood um and so yeah the the alternative to say god doesn't have blood i don't know who would say that or if maybe they would only say it because they're confused about um about the nature of the incarnation or they felt maybe someone trying to pigeonhole us into thinking that God prior to the incarnation and, and aside apart from the incarnation has to have blood. And that might be like someone who's leaning towards some weird theology that you don't want to avoid. Um, question number five, cat high says as an atheist who would like to believe in God goes to church and has read the gospel. What steps do I take to believe? Um, well, cat, I, I, i am thrilled to hear that i'm excited for you i'll pray for you many of us honestly many of the people who are watching this video right now and watching the replay of the video later are going to be praying stopping and praying for you um what steps would you take like again i'm just one human talking to another here i i do believe what scripture says when it says if you seek the lord you'll find him it also says seek him with your whole heart and that where our hearts can become divided is one of the things to consider and for me to consider too this is for all of us okay like whenever you're trying to seek the lord if i'm harboring my heart is holding on to things that are that are against god i may not think i'm against god in that area but my life is choosing an alternate path like how how can i explain this um god is goodness and if i'm embracing something that's 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 bad in, in, in as much as I embrace that bad thing, I am rejecting God in that area. And so so what we call sin can, can uh, inhibit my ability to seek the Lord. I may be praying, I may think I'm seeking God, but I'm not yielding my life to the Lord in a real true way where I'm like saying, I want to turn from this sin and turn to Christ. So you, like me, have sinful tendencies just like I do. And those sinful tendencies are the opposite of seeking God. I I think that this is a huge thing to think about, to be aware of. Am I, do I know what those are? No. Um, At the risk of sounding like I'm being judgmental over you, I'm going to describe, I'm describing to you what I think is the condition of every human being, not just you, that we're all like this. And so I I hope that you will consider that seek the Lord, meaning, yeah, you can read the Bible. Yeah. You can pray. You can go to a church service, go to churches and churches can be a mixed bag. Because what you're doing is you're you're literally picking potentially a random group of people who say, "We believe in God, we believe the Bible, we believe in Jesus, and we're we're following him." And you don't know how true that is. Uh, you, you're you're sort of at the mercy of individuals. That can be a challenging process finding a good, solid church, some good Christians to be to be connected with. Um, but yeah, the um, the seriousness with which we're willing to set aside the area. L- let's say put it this way hypothetically God's real and sin is part of what's holding you back from knowing him. There you go. I mean, that would be the thing to deal with. Pray about it. God, help me to see the things that are holding me back from knowing you help me to see there's the, the truths that are there. Um, man, you probably have a lot of questions and maybe, and, and I, I wish, I wish I knew more about your story. Um, I'm glad you go to church. You've read the gospel. What steps do you take to believe? You um yeah, those are good steps. Continue. Pray. Seek the Lord. The other thing I, I think often when I talk to atheists and non believers is that sometimes really good reasons to believe in God, they just don't see that they're good because they've they've come to believe they're bad for for bad reasons. And so, um, stuff that should be evidence to drive them to faith doesn't work because they just took a wrong turn somewhere with the evidence, which we're all capable of doing. Um, But obviously, if God's real and all the arguments for his reality seem silly, then maybe someone's taking a lot of wrong turns on the evidence. And we see this happen. You know, someone says, oh, here's the ontological argument for God. And then someone brings up a, a response. Forgive me for anybody who doesn't know this, but a response of like the creating the perfect island with more more dancing ladies on it and then you're like but that, that misunderstands the argument fundamentally so this is not actually a real objection to the argument or someone brings up the argument for um uh, ca- from causation it's so, so well you know the universe didn't just bring itself into existence and so god made it and then someone else says yeah but then who made god and then they walk away thinking that they've actually trumped that argument for god's existence when they haven't really heard the answer of like no nobody made god because that's his nature See, God is fundamentally a di- of a different nature than the universe. The universe is a kind of thing that was made and we know had a beginning, whereas God didn't and wasn't. This is not a weakness of the argument. This is a strength of the argument. Who made God just just reinforces how strong this is for a reason to believe in God because you have to eventually answer the, the question of what started all this stuff with something that didn't start itself. And that would be, well, that would be God. Um, at least that's the best explanation. So, but this, but sometimes these arguments sound terrible to people because they, they just believe bad defeaters for the arguments. And for that, um, what do you, what do you say? Oh man, study more, think more, take your time more and and pray. Cat, I, I've, I hope something I've shared has, has helped you and a bunch of people are gonna be praying for you. And, um, oh man, I really hope. One thing you might look into is evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. This is what's cool about this is sometimes you find evidence for God or for a piece of Christianity and yet you, you go, well, even if that's true, that piece of evidence, I'm not sure if I'm still convinced. Evidence for the resurrection is pretty awesome because if Jesus rose from the dead, it's like the key that unlocks all of the truths of Christianity. I mean, it, it's just, it all comes flooding in. If Christ resurrected, yeah, it's all true. So you might look into that. I have videos on that evidence for the resurrection. Um, and there's a, there's a bunch of videos I've got on my channel. I'll link some stuff down below after the stream for you to check out. And I hope you will. Elias Z says, how can Christians believe in a literal Adam and Eve account or a literal worldwide flood? Elias, I don't know if I'm the best person to answer this question. Um, I think the, the, okay, so we have two questions. The question you didn't ask that I'm going to come back to is whether or not the Bible teaches those things. The first question is that you did ask is how can a Christian believe in those things? Well, a literal Adam and Eve, um, is, uh, it, do- it doesn't seem that hard to believe in. I know that people suggest that you can't have, uh, Adam and Eve at a certain date. Okay, the dating issue is the thing that I think people more scientifically have a harder time with is when did this take place, but not sort of could there be an Adam and Eve? Then there's all kinds of complex questions about a bunch of other stuff. I don't know if you've looked into this stuff. Genesis is something I've studied a lot and the different theories about it um, from Christians on how they understand it. Going back to even people like Origen and stuff like that, like who who thought uh, had like an old earth view. Long before evolution and all that kind of stuff, and the rise of science, so I don't, I don't know the answer to some of those questions. Many of those questions I've got. Um, how can I scientifically believe in a literal Adam and Eve? I don't think it's that challenging. Having looked into it a little bit personally, okay, I just don't think it's that challenging. Uh, The timing of it is a bigger challenge, partly because we're covering a bunch of disciplines of science that most of us know nothing about. And here we are trying to marshal evidence from areas of research. We, We, for the most of us, most of us, you and me, we know nothing about this stuff. Population genetics. What do you know about that? I don't know anything about it. But yet it weighs in on how I could scientifically support these claims. So yeah, literal worldwide flood. Again, we're into areas where scientifically, most of us are completely out of our depth. Most human beings are just out of their depth. Like we're just not equipped with the, the the knowledge to be able, what we have to do is we have to just find people we trust and then we believe them. And so some of you have found <clears throat> answers in Genesis and you've said youngest creationism is fully supported with the worldwide flood, a, a recent worldwide flood and all that. And you don't really understand the research and know all the stuff. And you know, Mount St. Helens had layers, but you don't really know if that's, you know, that's something that that translates onto all of the earth or not. Maybe it does, maybe it doesn't, but you don't know. Sorry, my dentist is calling. <laughs> That's awkward. Okay, but we we I'm just what I'm suggesting here is there's an ignorance on the individual level where we simply find someone we trust. Maybe you go, oh Hugh Ross, and he has his view, and I trust his view, and they have like an, an old Earth, and they look at the flood account, and they they have a whole explanation of it being a literal flood and all that. But when they say worldwide, what they mean is well worldwide means like the world of humanity, right? It doesn't mean earth. Uh typically the world, the word world in scripture doesn't mean earth. Do you see how it gets complicated pretty quick? Here's how I think a Christian can resolve this quickly. And then there's a there's a longer resolution that takes more time than I've even had that I don't have the resolution for. Quickly, I say this the statements in scripture about the flood and about Adam and Eve, I believe because of the credibility that scripture has already with me. That is, there's prophecy in scripture that is demonstrably fulfilled to show me that God inspired this text. There is a lot, actually. There is the person and work of Jesus Christ to show me that God, in fact, is involved in the inspiration of scripture. There is the radical transformation of my own life, my own experiences with God that also affirm and ratify those same things. There's the unity of the scripture And then there's, which, which by the way, is one of the most neglected arguments because it's, it's complicated to talk about the unity of 66 different texts, but having studied this stuff a lot, I'm blown away by it personally. If I can't convince you of it, fine, but I'm blown away. Look at my Jesus in the old Testament series just blows my mind. There's a long, it's like 20 something videos, you know, an hour or so each that are just going through it all. The unity of scripture is just amazing. Um, That shows me God's behind it. So What I see in scripture is an inspired text from God telling me there was a real Adam and Eve, there was a real flood, right? Or there was Adam and Eve, there was a flood, right? Now, I believe that, and I believe what scripture says is true. I am willing to entertain in-house debates on what the Bible meant in Genesis 1 through 12 when it talks about Adam and Eve and the flood. I do think that when you look at the scope of scripture, Adam and Eve, definitely real individuals. The flood, was it planet-wide? Like I once was a hundred percent convinced. And then I looked at it more and more and more. And I started wondering like, was it really planet-wide or was it, was it humanity-wide? I'm not, I'm not sure. Like I'm a bit on the fence on this, not at all doubting scripture, but wondering if I have the right interpretation of it. I think that Christians can say based on the credibility of scripture, I trust the Adam and Eve stuff. Now for a skeptic, a non-believer, if you're trying to challenge and, and, and get to the conclusion of, do I believe the Bible in the first place? I don't think I would go to the most distant, historically remote thing there is, and then try to research stuff that goes way over your own head as a way of confirming it. I think I would start with something that is more central, like the resurrection of Christ. I would start with something that is more going to get on target of showing whether the Bible is actually inspired by God, like fulfilled prophecy. I would recommend those things. Um, That's where I'm at on that stuff. Uh, One day, I hope to have better answers, more thorough answers. Um yeah, Elias. I hope some of that has helped. And I'll just move forward since I I have again uh, some unresolved stuff. Uh not that my trust in scripture is unresolved. That's resolved. It's how I understand those passages that I I wonder if um I'm getting I'm, I'm getting them correctly. And that debate's been going on for a very, very long time in the body of Christ. Uh Corazon Prodigo. Prodigo? Prodigo? I, I'm probably pronouncing your name wrong. <laughs> Hi, Pastor Mike. Thank you for your ministry. Um, thank you for l- helping me have a ministry just by you guys partaking of it. Um, is it true to say that Jesus doubted? How would you respond to someone that claims that he did in Gethsemane, implying that it's okay to doubt? Oh, um, that's a really interesting question. So, yeah. Um, did Jesus doubt? My my answer would be, uh, no, I don't believe Jesus doubted. I don't believe there's any text of scripture that suggests for a second he doubted. There are other people who doubted and they, they weren't always cast out for doubting. So like John the Baptist doubted, you know, he sent messengers while he was in prison, right? He, okay. Imagine your life going through something like that. Like if you really imagine life going like that, you understand why he was struggling. He sent messengers to Jesus and he said, are you the one? even though God had showed him that Jesus was the one, like God had showed him, like the one upon whom the spirit remains and all this. So he doubted and Jesus gave him the prophetic answer, right? Of like, look at what you're seeing. This is the fulfillment of scripture. I'm paraphrasing. So yes, he's the one. Uh, We have the centurion who said, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. So there's a man who doubts, but he trusts at the same time. John the Baptist, he had doubt, but he also chose trust at the same time. I think doubt coexisting with faith is one thing and doubt in the absence of faith, where I simply choose doubt, uh, doubt is, is where I live. Like I did, I'm an unbeliever. That's a different situation. But did Jesus, um, I don't think so in the garden of Gethsemane, where does it say Jesus doubted? Did Jesus struggle? Yes. Did Jesus say, if there's any other way, let this cut pass from me. Yes. Did he know there was no other way? Yes. Why? Because the same gospel that where he says, if there's any other way, let this cut pass," He tells Peter, get behind me, Satan. Right? When, when he says, Lord, no, you won't be killed. You won't be killed. And he says, get behind me, Satan. And he says to his disciples, the Son of Man must be crucified. It has to happen. I have come to be the ransom for the world. He, he has all these statements. So Jesus didn't for a second doubt the necessity of his death and resurrection. He didn't for a second doubt the goodness of of the father. He didn't for a second doubt though. It wasn't doubt. It was, it was the horrific reality of the pain and the suffering and the shame and the anguish he would face that had him saying these things out loud. This is how I feel. How do you feel? I feel that if there's any other way, let us cut past. Uh, The only way I'm doing this is if it's the only way. And it was. So was that doubt? Um, I don't believe that was doubt. Um, But for your friend, or whoever it might say this, um, is it okay to doubt? Let me say a person. I'll put it this way: a person who doubts can still be acceptable to God and embraced by God. Are their doubts good? They're not good. Doubt is sometimes treated in our culture like it's a moral good. Like I have doubts. Like like it's a moral quality. Like putting you on the good guy side. And um, and some people will will act like their doubts are pious. That their doubts are righteous. I mean, I've seen this and you see it if you pay attention. Um, that That's not the case. Uh, doubt towards God is not a good thing. It's not a healthy thing. But it doesn't mean that you're cast out. It doesn't mean that you're, you're you're gone from God's presence. But you have doubts. You take those to the Lord. You choose faith in the midst of doubt. And that's what that's what you do. I, I hope that helps in some way. Uh, next question, Meg B says, Why would I surrender myself to someone who could help me be well, not be in pain, heal me? And is with me at all times, but doesn't help me. And this, this question is a question from her friend, who is obviously, that's that's a hard question to answer. So let's suppose, hypothetically, your friend here is going through some kind of major uh, physical suffering. There's a lot of pain. There's a lack of physical health. And anybody who's gone through chronic pain can understand how chronic pain is very different than temporary pain. Um, uh, I, I know... <laughs> It, it can grate on you in a different way it can wear you down in a way that you didn't expect chronic pain is a different thing and to think god you absolutely could could help me you could heal me you could stop this pain right now and yet you don't and that is the case for many people and now some would respond well he's going to do it you just have to keep believing and keep trusting keep having faith and i think that this is um, a very hopeful attitude a very positive attitude, but not a biblical one. uh, In my view, I think instead the, the key word here to, to change your perspective or your friend's perspective on the situation is to recognize that it's temporary. The pain and the suffering I'm in right now are temporary. If I reworded this question Why would I, with adding that it's temporary in there, here's how it would sound. Why would I surrender myself to someone who will help me and is with me at all times, but isn't going to help me yet? I think the answer is obvious. The only hope I have for the chronic issues, but also for the coming issues, because even if you get healed of this physical suffering you're in right now, you will one day still face the detriment of your own body and finally death, that terrifying moment that terrifying season in many cases, in most cases, probably. You're going to face that regardless. Then you're going to be like, I need help like I've never needed help before. And it is is, is, it is in death that we find we have the resurrection of Christ. We have eternal life. We've got the very presence of God for all eternity. I mean, you could say to your friend, look, when you have been in heaven for 50,000 years in the presence of God in glory and peace and joy, you're going to look back at this time in your life and you're going to say, the suffering I went through isn't even worth being compared to the glory I experience now. And that's what Paul said in First Corinthians. The sufferings of this present time, he didn't say they'll go away. He said they're not worthy to be to be compared to the glory that is coming. Our joy, our happiness. And anybody who's gone through a, a long period of hard time that that ended and then got better, you know what it's like when that weight is lifted. Well, that weight will be lifted. I would say your friend is is is. Focused on getting healed, focused on feeling better. Jesus is the only solution for that. It's just a question of timing. God is working in our pain, in our suffering. He is working in our hardship. He's working through it in our character, in the lives of people around us, and in ways that we can't even determine. God is at work and He'll end it. He'll wipe every tear away and He'll bring us in His glorious presence. This is the promise of the gospel. Why would you surrender yourself to someone like that? (laughs) Why would you not? There could be no other reasonable choice. Eddie 1356 has a question. Why does God require belief for forgiveness? Why can't God simply forgive our sins as Jesus died for all and not attach belief to that? Um, uh, so Jesus dying for you is not a non-personal event. This treats it like it is though, right? Like Jesus is just dying to make my life better. So if you're God, if you want to make my life better, just make it better. Don't come with strings attached. Let me, let me offer this another way. Um, I proposed to my wife and when I proposed, part of that was me saying, I will provide not solely because she, she works too, <laughs> but I will, I will pool all my resources together with you for the rest of our lives. Everything I own, you own too. And now, what if she turned to me and said, if you want to give me all your resources for the rest of your life, why don't you just give it to me without requiring me to marry you? But you see that this, what this does is it's, without meaning to, it's hugely insulting to the very institution of marriage. It's hugely insulting to the offer of relationship that I've given. And it makes the marriage offer sound like a burden when it's actually the biggest most it's the biggest gift i could ever give anybody is to say hey i want to i want to marry you i want to be joined to you forever like this the way the the question is worded it frames things in a way that loads these sort of presuppositions as though as though god's saying believe in me know me for eternity love me i love you we relationally join together forever will you'll be in my presence forever I'll give you eternal life that, that all the relational aspects of that are like an insult that God is forcing upon people because he requires belief for forgiveness. But God isn't just forgiving you. He's joining you to himself. The way he forgives you, Jesus, he takes your sin on himself and he gives you his righteousness. This is relational. This isn't just about wiping the slate clean. It's, it's deeper than that. It's bigger than that. I wish I had better words to describe it. What Jesus does for you is he comes in your place relationally. He represents you on the cross. He dies your death. He rises from the dead, gives you his life, takes your sins, gives you his righteousness. When you trust in him, he enters into your life. God, through his Holy Spirit, indwells you, regenerates you, restores you, spiritually speaking, makes you into a new person, and that person is tied to him forever. What you're asking for is ultimately... Not requiring belief is like saying, why doesn't God just give everyone their own little heaven apart from God for all eternity, where they could just do whatever they want, live however they want, and just have all of the blessings of their own pleasures, but without any obligations to the creator of the universe who made them for himself. It insults the offer of forgiveness to ask the question. I mean, I'm not, I'm not insulting you. Okay, look, every question is welcome here. Every questioner is welcome here. But that doesn't mean every question is like wise, okay? And this is this this question. Well, I'm, I'm these are my favorite questions because they clear up a lot of confusion that I think is out there. This question: Why does God require belief for forgiveness? Is like saying, Why does Mike require marriage to join his bank account to his wife? Right? You get what I mean. <laughs> this is because it's 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 so intricately connected that how could you not? What what sort of forgiveness does God give? that doesn't require this belief the belief comes with the the forgiveness comes with jesus with who he is being being joined ultimately to you it's a beautiful wonderful thing um yeah so only a cosmic um what's the, the term the term nowadays is uh may, main player syndrome is that the term i've heard recently Or they, they used to talk about people who, um, main character syndrome, that's it. Main character syndrome. People who tend to look around the world, uh, it's not an official syndrome, I don't think, right? It's just something people say on the internet, right? They look around the world and they tend to treat everybody like NPCs and like everybody else exists and non-player characters in a video game just to sort of bring me pleasure and make me happy. And that's treating God like the NPC and you're, you're the main character. Um, but that's a distortion of reality ultimately. Uh Ebberm 1 says, I have a neighbor who can't get past this question. My dad had cancer and died. You uh, that's the person asking the question, you had it and lived. Why does God think that's fair? Um Yeah, you you can't really answer anybody this kind of question because it's so loaded with their own personal grief and their personal anguish. Um I don't I don't know, especially like on the internet, trying to answer someone's question like this, it, it can just be so difficult and challenging you don't know them you don't have that sort of social currency of an actual relationship with them where you can tell people some tough things Um, but i would challenge the, the the idea that it's fair that one person dies from cancer and the other one doesn't the bible doesn't actually say this right it doesn't say that everybody gets equal treatment and equal experiences on earth somebody dies as an infant somebody else dies as an old man somebody lives lives a a a god-loving life and dies at 22 with brain cancer and somebody else lives a, a hedonistic evil life where they're like part of a corporation that's oppressing people and taking advantage of people and lying to people to make themselves rich and then they die at like 90 years old surrounded by their grandkids that the fairness fairness isn't going to happen in that's not how it works so when they're like, how is that fair? What they're really complaining about is why isn't life fair? I, I guess maybe that's, maybe you guys can help me here, but what they're really seem to be bothered by, let's let's step away from the example of my dad died of cancer, but you didn't. Let's just say, why isn't life fair? And then we have two problems. Uh, we have one, the issue that um, life is not said to be fair, biblically speaking, um, but God is gonna make it fair eventually. Okay, that kind of solves the problem in my, in my opinion here on Christianity, there isn't just life. There is an afterlife and God is going to deal with all of the mess of, of justice and judgment and reward and all that. He's going to deal with that finally in the afterlife. That's, that's, that's one problem sort of addressed is that the fairness comes in light of eternity and not just in light of your experiences in this life right now. Then there is the other side of the coin, which is that if God was to, and this is a hard pill to swallow, if God was to treat us fairly, we would probably all be going through much more hardship than we really are. Um, we, we live more in the realm of grace than we realize because of our continual sins that we tend to ignore. This is, this is a biblical teaching. This is a Christian view is that mankind is greatly loved by God, but is also a real problem. We're made in the image of God, yet we are also really pretty stinking sinful. And we see both of these qualities and we tend to focus on one or the other, um, more, more often than not a man sort of like the qualities, the positive qualities of man versus the negative. We tend to focus maybe on the positive more. I think that this is a hard pill to swallow to say, um, if I was treated according to my sins, God would have smitten me a long time ago. Okay. I would have, I would have died a while back. It's just grace that extends us. Jesus put it this way. He says, God makes his rain to fall on the just and the unjust. Now, we often think of rain as an analogy for sorrow and hardship. But in this text, rain is the farming community, a very good thing. God allows common blessings and life and air and food and water and, and friendship and fun and laughter and all these wonderful things we experience in life. He allows them to be experienced across the board to a bunch of people who may not deserve it. It is in the next stage when justice comes and God deals with those things. I don't know if that would really help your question though. I just don't know if that would help this this question, the, the neighbor's question. Your dad died of cancer. I'm sorry. The only hope I can give you for death is Jesus. I, I don't know how to fix your heart here. Uh, my you guys many of you guys know this my mother literally died of cancer let's see it was a month and 12 days ago right so i understand but i see the difference here is that i see jesus as my hope in that circumstance i don't see god as the victimizer the one who caused the problems but as the, as the solution bringer the one who brings the solutions i never expected on christianity that my mom would never die of cancer I expected on Christianity that God had a plan and a solution and a cure for the death that we will all eventually experience. That I can offer. I don't know how to fix anything else. Let's go to the next question. Anonymous question. Any advice for lay people doing public ministry that are attacked by non-believers on the basis of credentials? Lay people doing public ministry that are attacked by non-believers on the basis of credentials. I feel I'm capable of interpretation and ministry despite never having been to seminary. Um. Hmm. attack by non-believers but you say i guess i don't know your situation well enough so i'm going to, have to make a few guesses you say it's non-believers attacking you on the basis of credentials so i'm guessing you're dealing with apologetics right you're witnessing to non-believers because you're not in a church where it's believers who are saying hey you know you can't really teach you haven't really gone through the education that we think you should but we're dealing with a non-believer so it's probably evangelism and 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 but if you were doing evangelism nobody would attack your credentials because who's like what kind of credentials do you have to tell me the gospel like i don't see a non-believer saying that more likely i'm guessing you're doing apologetics so you're like offering a philosophical argument a scientific argument of uh, or a related science-related argument you're offering um prof- prophetic evidence and someone's just saying like well who are you why would i believe what you say about history you're not a historian." Um, I think that in that case, you just have to stay focused on the argument. This is what's called an ad hominem attack. Look it up. Ad hominem, H-O-M-I-N-E-M, hominem. An ad hominem attack is when somebody goes after the man, ad hominem to the man, right? They attack the person, the individual, rather than their argument. Now, I get this in my series on women in ministry. I am not a, I'm not a scholar, guys. I'm not pretending to be. I'm doing work that I hope is solid, but you have to judge me based on my work. If you want to judge me, Mike Wenger, based on my credentials, that is my schooling and my degrees, they're going to be lacking. I did two years at the School of Ministry, Calvary Costa Mesa. That's not the Bible college. For those familiar with that, it's not. It's a different program. It's patterned after a seminary. We did do things like Greek, like actually Greek and stuff like that, but but it was not an accredited seminary. So I don't, I don't go around telling people I'm, I have my master's or something like that, because I don't my work has to be judged based upon the quality of the work itself if someone says but mike isn't actually a legitimate scholar in that area i can only agree with them and then say but i didn't this is the important bit i didn't base my arguments say my women in ministry series i didn't base it off of my credentials so attacking my credentials changes absolutely nothing (laughs) what you have to do is look at the arguments themselves the only people who'd be convinced by this argument against you well, you lack a degree in this field is people who think, I'll just believe anyone who has a degree in that field. Or maybe they have a different rule. I'll, I'll only believe a subset of people, right? Those people have to, A, have a degree in that field and B, then I'll consider their arguments. I will literally ignore everyone who doesn't have that degree. If that's them, then guess what? Your evangelism is not for that person. You just move on don't defend yourself. Just say, Hey, you've attacked me, but you haven't dealt with my arguments. That's just, that's the thing you you've come at me for my credentials. You have not dealt with my arguments. My, my, um, uh, the things I'm saying to you are based upon these reasons, which have nothing to do with my credentials. And, um, some people will hear you and some people won't. Uh, there's plenty of people who, in response to my women in ministry series, really highlighted, Mike doesn't have a, a, a degree in this and in that. And I'm like, And that works for some people. Guess what? I'm not, I'm not for those people. I'm not going to help them. I'll move on, help somebody else. Number 12, D.W. Conley says, can the devil interpret what a non-believer may be thinking or what's on their mind? Can he understand what a person is thinking? So my short answer on this, because it's getting late there, um, is that Satan can probably guess what's on people's minds pretty well. Um, the older I get, the more I can read people's minds, read people's faces, rather. I can't read people's minds. <laughs> I can read people's faces, facial expressions, their attitude. Um, it's not foolproof and I try not to rely on it too much. Um, but I'm better at it than I was. Right. And so especially younger people who tend to project and hide that stuff less good than older people. And, um, you know, they go, they sigh or they're go- they make these expressions. They do certain things now I imagine a demon doesn't have many barriers. Satan doesn't have many barriers to when he can observe a person, an individual. Now he only sees probably one at a time, right? Or one location at a time. But if he's able to watch you and see what you're doing and track you, then he can kind of see because the patterns that people go in, he can predict what people are, are, are sort of thinking or going through. That's my understanding of it. I don't, I don't think he can pull thoughts out of our head in that sense, but I do think he can put thoughts in our head. And that's not to say that I don't want to go too far with it, but we know that Scripture says Satan put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot to betray Jesus. Put it into his heart. We know that Satan works um, in people's lives, He's sort of the puppet master of the world and the worldly. And so there's there's something there. The, the, these these fiery darts from the enemy that Ephesians talks about that we extinguish, extinguish with the shield of faith. I think that those may be. Thoughts that are being projected into our minds, ideas. Now that might be like, how's that? That's like mind control. I I don't think it's like mind control. Think of it this way. Right now I'm talking to you. I'm literally putting ideas into your head. I'm right now I'm putting into your head the idea that by talking to you, I'm putting ideas into your head. So I'm doing it right now. I think Satan has some method of doing that as well. Satan, of course, individually is probably not harassing any of you who are watching my video. Um, He's just one being. He's not omnipresent or anything. But it doesn't mean that some demonic attack isn't coming or that at some low point, when the enemy detects that you're at your low point, boom, this idea comes into your mind that you're like, where did that come from? Why did I think of that? And then you hold up that shield of faith and you fight that battle just like when... um, you're walking in the store and you see some inappropriate magazine in front of you and you think, I was just given, where did that come from? I know where it came from. It came from this magazine, right? But I'm going to look away. I'm not going to sit and dwell on that thing. Uh, same kind of thing. You're, you're just going to move away from that thought, move on to something better. Uh, George Stones says, how can you prove that parts of the Bible weren't written after the events took place, like prophecies, as well as historical accounts of God's providence his Providence histories written by the winners of battles. okay that, that feels like eight questions <laughs> a lot of ones. Um, how can I prove that parts of the Bible weren't written after the events took place? the the answer there is it's complicated. You need to look at each individual book of the Bible and analyze its its manuscript history. That's a lot of work, right? You, what you can do is you could start with where there's some agreement among scholars on things and say, hey, let me start there. If I'm working to prove prophecy is from God, I don't need to prove every prophetic thing in the Bible happened. I just need to find at least some that seem pretty convincing. And so that's what I've done in my series, Evidence for the Bible. I grabbed stuff that I could easily show, like there's agreement. This was written before the event took place. There's agreement on that. It's like, it's not even really a debate. And then use those examples to show that prophecy was actually fulfilled in scripture. I would recommend doing that. Um, uh, if you're doing evangelism in that sense, uh, proving parts of the Bible weren't written after the events, let me give you some examples. Um, Daniel has some specific stuff about the, uh, the timing of, of, of Jesus coming. Okay. And that's a very challenging stuff to talk about the math and all this other stuff that gets into it. I have a video on it. Did my best. You guys can check it out uh, on Daniel chapter nine, but the dating of Daniel is a debate. So in that individual book, I made a whole case for the dating of Daniel, right? Then there's the Ezekiel prophecies. Well, the dating of Ezekiel is not really a debate. So in that one, the Ezekiel prophecies in that same evidence for the Bible series, which I will link below for anybody who wants to check it out. Um, I go through the Ezekiel stuff and there's not really so much debate on that, on the timing of Ezekiel. And so then that seems like an easier one. The either, In either case though, the entire Old Testament was definitely written before the life of Jesus. And so any fulfillment that Jesus did that is found anywhere in the Old Testament, that was all written long before Christ, for sure. There's no debate on that whatsoever. Sometimes you don't need to show that it was written when the Bible indicates it was written. You just need to show it was written before Jesus, because that's the prophecies you're focusing on. So the answer is it's complicated. Um, But for the sake of evangelism, you don't need to prove everything. You're just trying to find good examples to demonstrate the truth of Christianity. Babs Vacation says, What proof away from science there is a God? Oh, man. I do not understand this. What proof away from science there is a God? Um, either you mean apart from scientific proof, how do I know there's a God? Or you mean what scientific proof is there that there's a God? <laughs> I'm not sure which one. Um, let's let's tackle this. The Let's say what scientific proof is there that there's a God? Okay, this is my, you know, fallible human being, my best, uh, thoughts for you here. Um, scientific proof that there's a God, the, um, the evidence for the, um, the finitude of time of past time in the universe. That's pretty strong evidence, scientific evidence that, that is part of an argument for God's existence. So that is, You know, there was a lot of people back in the day, like 1900s and even before that, who they basically thought the universe was eternal. This was like a popular scientific view. The universe was just eternal. And Einstein famously even fudged some numbers on his theory of relativity because he was trying to bend towards that, the universe being eternal. And there was another guy, Hubble. You guys have heard of him, Hubble, the Hubble telescope, who observed the red shift. And this long story short, the red shift was just showing us that the universe was, in fact, expanding. You keep doing math, you keep crunching numbers, you keep doing research, and they come to find the universe used to be not only smaller, but smaller, 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 until you eventually have to say, it just had a beginning point. It just exploded into existence, right? This is just well-established stuff, scientifically. Scientists did not initially like this very much. Did you know that? They were actually very bothered by this initially. Um, Sorry, I'm just going to mute a notification because they're driving me nuts. There we go. Um, One of the reasons why they were not all scientists, some scientists were bothered by this is because the implication of a non-eternal universe is that it had a beginning and therefore it must have had some sort of cause. And the most obvious cause would be God. And there's a whole argument that can be made for that. But that's scientific evidence that can be used in an argument for God's existence. That is, the universe had a beginning, therefore God. You Now, you, you pull it out and you explain it in more detail. You make a case for it all. But that's really strong evidence. Then there's things like the teleological argument, the argument from the design of the universe. This isn't how old the universe is or that it had a beginning, but rather that it's highly designed. Now, science can help us establish how well, how thoroughly designed the universe is, And then you can use this as evidence for God so that the teleological argument, which comes in sort of two different, two different broad strokes. One is describing, uh, you know, biology, the design within biology implies intentionality implies an intelligent designer, right? God, or you could look at it, not from biology, but from sort of the cosmos, the design within the cosmos, that is the constants and quantities of creation itself that you've got in the universe, a certain amount of gravity, a certain sort of power of gravity. You've got the strong nuclear force and the weak nuclear force, and you've got dark matter and, and whatever that is. And you've got all these different things that if they weren't balanced perfectly on just a razor's edge, there simply wouldn't be any space for any intelligent life in the universe. Cause you have to have planets and water and you have to have physics functioning a certain way. And It doesn't just conveniently function. Oh, like if you tweaked these numbers, if you just randomly spun a dial and set all the constants and quantities, you would have, you would never arrive at at an actual functional universe the way we have now, where there could be intelligent life. So there's a scientific foundation for an argument for God's existence. Um, There's other stuff too, like math. Um, There's an argument from math. Now that's a philosophical argument, but science can help us to highlight how much math is embedded in the universe, so to speak. So there, there we go. There's some scientific evidence for God that I think is powerful. Um, good stuff. Number 15, Pyromaniac129 says, do you honestly think the Bible couldn't have been more clear about important moral issues where the church has been very wrong? Treatment of gays, et cetera. What does that say about authorship? Yeah, um, I wonder what you mean by treatment of gays. that would be a super interesting thing to explore what you mean by that because I I would agree and disagree with that because a modern treatment of of gays where you are endorsing and supporting that lifestyle and saying, yeah, go for it, a a sinful and harmful lifestyle that hurts you and hurts those around you, that's obviously a bad treatment, but that is our current modern culture. Uh, But then stoning and persecuting and picking on people uh, in, in a cruel bully fashion is also wrong and that is totally in the past. And could the Bible have been more clear about that? I mean, it. The okay, there, I have two answers to the question. One is, yeah, the Bible could always be more clear. Pick any topic in the world, right? Like, thou shalt not murder. Proper interpretation there, right? that translation. Thou shalt not murder. Could it be more clear? I, I guess. Like, nobody is allowed to murder right that's more clear because then the vow would apply to everybody even though i've argued we're not in the ten commandments i'm just saying you could you could make that even more clear <laughs> that would actually that would actually that would actually change my understanding of the ten commandments but you you could make things more clear right there's tons of ways i could make I, anything i've said today i could make it more clear and here's the trick after i've made it more clear guess what i could do i could make it more clear And after i've made it more clear again guess what i could still do i could probably make it more clear and after i've made it clear again what could i do then i could still make it more clear you can literally always make things more clear i mean hypothetically at least and so the answer to that question is like ah yeah the bible could have been more clear about important moral issues but how is that relevant was the bible actually clear enough to begin with that's the better question i think because it it gets out with the implication of the question was the Bible clear enough? Well, yes. Uh, I think it was clear enough on important moral issues. I think people don't listen to the Bible. People don't care about the Bible. People even quote the Bible to misuse the Bible, like the um, the people who would quote the Bible, like let's 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 stone, let's kill gay people. because of whatever the Bible says in the Old Testament. They're not actually going to be reading through all of the scripture, caring about it. Like, are they going to stone everybody that the Old Testament says to stone? Are they going to read the New Testament, which tells us we're not under the law? Are they going to look at the examples of the New Testament, which shows that we're not supposed to do that? Are they going to talk about how Jesus says his kingdom is not of this world? He's not taking the Old Testament law and spreading it out to all nations. The whole book of Acts, which gets into a detailed examination of a complex treatment and application of Old Testament law to New Testament Christians. We're ignoring all of that. The Bible could have been more clear for the casual disinterested reader who just wants to rip verses out of context. But, but I, so I mean, I, I, this might sound like I'm being defensive. Um, in a sense, I am not of myself, but of scripture, the Bible's so good. Okay. Like nobody paying careful attention to scripture is going to walk away thinking, Ooh, I know what I should do. Uh, whenever I see somebody who's gay, I should mock and ridicule them and make their life miserable. <laughs> like nobody's reading scriptures and saying this when, when, with Jesus who walked around all the compassion he gave to a world full of sinners, the invitation of the gospel that goes out to all people, calling them what they are sinners, but inviting them into a new life in Christ, that this is the heart of it all. Like nobody's able to do that um, and pay attention to scripture. It's just, it's just it's bonkers. So I I think that the Bible is clear enough on those issues that, 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 that this is not a a good objection to scripture or Christianity, but I also think we have to acknowledge something else about scripture. And that is that the Bible was written, not to you. It was written for you, right? But it wasn't written to you. The Bible is not written to a 2023 audience in a 2023 setting. It was written not only to ancient people, but God in, in genius wrote it in such a way that it was going to be for the Jew first, and then also for the Gentile. And that's really how it's written. It's written as a Jew first and also for the Gentile. And it was going to be applying into cultures across the world for generations going throughout different like whole seasons of time, like the industrial revolution and the tech era and all this other stuff, the information era. And it had to be for all of those areas. And so if the Bible had been written in a way that would be perfectly suited to a 2023 individual, it would have been far less suited to a first century individual and less effective, and less people getting saved, and ultimately a ripple effect that would have hurt the cause of Christianity throughout time. If it had been written for a Middle Ages individual, for a Reformed individual in the 1500s who's dealing with the, the Catholic uh, Protestant stuff, it would have been less effective for those in earlier ages. The Bible was written for such a broad audience that you have to say, not is could it have been better for me, in my current western culture but would it have actually been better as a whole throughout time and then i don't know how you would improve uh sean shauna moen says i'm so afraid i'm sorry shauna there is so many views about god how can i be sure i'm following the correct ways i claim to be christian but there are too many different views shauna i understand um it can be very overwhelming um Whenever you research something, this applies to God, but it applies to, in religion and other stuff. Uh, this There's this sort of confusion stage that you can hit where you sort of start reading. Oh, you know, here's, here's I'm going to the research. I'm thinking there's like two or three views on this issue. And then you research more and you realize, oh, there's like 20 views or 30 views or 80 or 100 views. And then you're just trying to wrap your head around them all. And then you read one and then it's totally different than another. And you're confused by that. And you can get a point where you're confused and you're more confused than you ever were. And that can cause you to doubt. If you continue researching right, and you're patient with it for many, maybe it won't apply to you, but many people, you get past the confusion stage and it starts to make sense again, because at first you're just learning about the variety of these different views. But if you keep learning them, you learn them enough to analyze them and evaluate them. And so you're not intimidated by simply the existence of all these views. You're actually at a point where you can figure out what's right and wrong about them. And right now, it might feel like you're at the mercy of whoever you're listening to. Like, well, I listened to a Muslim and all of a sudden I think Islam might be right. And I listened to Mike and I think Christianity is probably true. And then I look to some Catholic guy and I'm thinking, like, a Catholicism is probably right. And then I listen to some Orthodox dude. And then I talk to some New Ager and I'm like, oh, that's kind of appealing too. And this is, um, you're being, you're, it may, be, may or may not be you, but you may be being persuaded by the personalities because you're lacking the foundation to actually evaluate the worldviews, right? Where, if, like, so let's say, take Islam. Um, if Islam is true, what follows? If Islam is true, what proves that truth? And it's certainly not a charismatic Muslim that I met or a very nice, kind-hearted Muslim person that I met. Therefore, maybe Islam's is true, because certainly I can find kind-hearted people in every different religious group I, that's not a really good way to measure the reality. If it's true then 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 it would be that Muhammad was a real prophet and the things that he said were really true. well what what does Islam teach and Islam is an easy one to, to rule out when you find out more about it. Islam has a, a different understanding of the nature of God than what scripture has in the Bible. It has a different understanding of the person and work of Jesus, who he was. He's just a prophet. He's not God in the flesh and his work. He did not die on the cross for your sins and rise again from the dead, right? Not according to classic Islam. Some people, some Muslims are starting to change their tune, but not classic Islam. Now you might hear me and think, well, Mike, you're just saying Islam is wrong because Christianity is right. And it disagrees with Christianity. No, no, I'm just building the first point. In a multi point case, right? So, Islam makes these claims about the person of God, the person of Jesus, and the work of Jesus. But then it makes other claims. It claims that it is the inheritor of the entire work of God through Abraham. And that the Bible, in its original form, in its God inspired form, was right and accurate and true. And that it's a continuation. So, it's trying to build on top of the Bible. But the Bible disagrees with Islam on these teachings. So how can it appeal to a text that tells it it's wrong? Wouldn't that be a defeater for Islam? So then they go, well, the Bible has been changed over time. There's like, they can never tell you what the Bible really says. They just know Islam is true. And the Bible, wherever it disagrees with with Islam, that's where it was wrong. Right? Was it Abraham? Was it Isaac? Islam is right. Every single copy of Genesis that you've ever had, wrong. And then you start to see, oh, you're just trying to hijack somebody else's religion. <laughs> That's all this is. This is just taking and borrowing from a from a belief system you don't actually you don't actually hold to. Okay, so it's an impostor, and Muhammad was an impostor. Okay, and you, if you learn more about these religions and more about it, you start to get more clarity on it. Um, but but slow down your heart. Don't panic over these things. If there's one thing you can agree on, I hope that it's that you trust the Bible, and you trust Scripture. And start building your foundation from the basics. There's a God. There's one God who made all things. Like that much is very clear in Scripture, right? He sent his son, Jesus, who took on human form, died on the cross for my sins, rose from the dead. That much I can feel really confident about because if you at least get Scripture down as your authority. I hope you have that much, Shana, but, um, But yeah, the fear you have now, don't let it cripple you, don't let it paralyze you. Continue seeking, continue. Don't let personalities pull you, even mine. Um, start to see the the logic and the biblical argumentation that these different religious groups are giving and work through that. I hope, man, I hope that helps you, Shauna. Mariel says, or is it Mariel, says, uh, why is there so much suffering if God is good? If he's almighty, why doesn't he stop all the bad things? um, we're late in the day for me to answer this question. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to give you a a quick answer, but I'm going to link a video down below called, um, I don't forget what it's called, but it's about the problem of evil and suffering. And I'm going to link it down below. I, it's a study I did a while back where I give you the long answer. Okay. So please, if this answer doesn't satisfy you, go click that video when I've put it down below and I'll give you the long answer along with any other links that I've talked about today. So if God is good, why doesn't he stop it? So there's an old argument that says, Hey, if God's good, he would want to stop all the evil and suffering this in the world, right? And then it's like, well, yeah, that seems legit. And then they say, well, if, if God is all powerful, then he'd be able to stop all the evil and suffering. And they go, well, yeah, I mean, he certainly is capable of it, right? If, if God exists, he certainly would be good enough to want to stop it and powerful enough to actually stop it. So then the response, then the follow-up is, well, then either God is not all good Or God is not all-powerful. So therefore, the Christian God cannot exist. Evil in the world proves that he doesn't. This makes the same mistake, I think, that an earlier uh, perspective that I was dealing with makes, which is to treat the present as if it is eternity and to ignore eternity completely. If you add the word yet into this formula, it all makes sense on Christian theology. If God is good, he'll want to stop evil. I agree. If he's powerful, he can stop evil, right? But he hasn't stopped it yet. So what does that mean? Well, it means that he, there must be a time where he will. He's going to. That's exactly what scripture teaches. This is actually what Christianity teaches is that because God is good, he will bring judgment into the world and he will judge all things and that it's going to happen in the future because he's fully capable of doing it. So then the question is, why is there a delay? Not why is there evil in the world, but why is there a delay in God resolving the evil that's in the world? And the the answers to this, again, I'll give you the long answer in the video and I hope it helps, but the answers to this in my view are, one, God is working good things in the midst of all the pain and suffering. And I can attest to this in my own life, you can attest to it in yours. Many, Not all, many of the things you've been through though, you've benefited from. Even the suffering, you found something good came out of that hardship. Not all. You, you can't always figure out what's going on. In fact, most of the time I probably can't, but at least some of the time I can. And that gives me some hope. That gives me some hope. That I find some good comes out of it. Sometimes just teaching me humility. Just teaching me to slow down and not be so arrogant, <laughs> which is something, a lesson I always need to learn. Um, those things are healthy. God is working good through the hardship. And that's what scripture teaches us. He says, God works all things together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Romans eight twenty eight, beautiful verse. God also is bringing people to salvation as he allows this world to carry on generation after generation. People get saved. If God had stopped all the evil a hundred years ago, a thousand years ago, I wouldn't be here today and I wouldn't have trust and faith in Christ. And I have, I've have scars, but I've also got the beautiful things that God has done through it all. We also know there's a few other things. We also know that. God is going to bring such blessings in our future that they will outstripe any suffering we've been through now so that we will in the end say, Hey, this was worth it. In fact, there are uh, philosophers who argue that, that the only way in which uh, God could create a perfect world is if he created two worlds. First, he creates a world or a reality where suffering is allowed because so much good comes through suffering, heroes and and stories of redemption and lessons learned and, and the punishment of wickedness, all these things come from an environment where suffering is allowed. So God would have to create a world to allow that first, then create a second world where now everything is perfect, but we have get all the lessons and all the benefits, all the blessings that we've got through the pain and the suffering we had. And so this is actually one of the, some philosophers will argue this, that, that God had to make, would, would have to make two worlds. One that had flaws and then one that was perfect um, in order to have a perfect world. Then the final thing is to realize that if God stopped all the evil that's out there, Mariel, then God would have to stop you and me. I do bad things. I, I, I say God stopped the evil, but what I really want him to stop is everything I don't like. I don't really want him to stop all the evil because then that includes me. So that's a problem. <laughs> I mean, if God stopped the evil, then how many people that are watching this right now who've given their life to Christ, whose lives have been transformed, you would have been stopped a long time ago. God is long suffering. Scripture tells us, according to the Bible to here, he's long suffering, meaning he waits to bring judgment to stop evil. He's long suffering, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to life, come to faith in Christ, come to trust in Jesus and get saved. One of the reasons God delays is so more people get saved and they can be brought into that eternal glory. These are some of the reasons. I hope that at least it takes the edge off of the problem of evil and suffering for you. And I will link the video below where I get into more details. I hope you will uh, think about that answer. Caleb Hammond says, define faith slash trust. If someone intellectually knows that God exists, but doesn't know how to trust in him, how would you counsel them? Hmm. Hmm. Um, Well, faith and trust as, as distinguished from say intellectual belief, mere intellectual belief would be, would involve uh, a sense of commitment. Um, Faith and trust, biblically speaking, they seem to always have a sense of commitment, right? Personal commitment. I am committed to that thing. And so that's where I have an intellectual belief in God versus I am committed to God. That's where that faith comes in. Um, Some define faith as belief without evidence. That is not a biblical definition. The Bible argues against that definition. um, And no, quoting Hebrews 11 at me doesn't change that. The Bible argues against that definition. I will link another video down below on why you should not define faith as belief without evidence. Even Christians, if you've done this, hey, that's what faith is, man. It's belief when you don't have any evidence. I know your heart was good, but if you say that, in the presence of the of the non-believer who's saying show me some evidence and you go well that's what faith is believe without evidence that's a destructive thing and it's not biblical and evidence is one of the things that distinguishes christianity from every other religion is that we actually do have evidence so when we say those things we're disagreeing with scripture and we're hurting our evangelism Um, at any rate it's trust and faith and trust here are a sense of commitment they involve a sense of commitment not only belief but belief with a Self-investment. Yes, I'm committed to that. Um, you said doesn't know how to trust God. What would you counsel them? I think that when, when we conduct our lives based on the things that we say we believe, then we see and we're stepping out in acts of faith. And that's a positive thing. So I would, I would encourage the person to step out in acts of faith. If if they if this is what they're trying to do, you're a non-believer, man, I'm, but I, I guess I am a believer. I believe there is a God, but like, what do I do? How do I do like the faith in God thing? I would say in your heart first, you simply choose to say, uh, I trust and rely on the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for me. That's huge. But then you start taking steps of faith, like actually pray, right? Cause that, that's a, you're committing yourself to this belief in God. When you actually stop and pray your acts of worship, reading the Bible and then changing your life based on the things that you read, cause faith produces works, right? This this trust you say you have live it out, live it out. that will be my, my counsel. There's got to be some pretty obvious ways that immediately come to that person's mind. When you say this, yeah, this is what I would need to do. Stop doing this, start doing that kind of thing. Go for it. Um, number 19, this is from Carolyn Dobson Dodson, who says if the Israelites had flocks and herds, why did they complain that they had no meat? They did not, they didn't have the law of Moses yet on what not to eat. Um, I guess I'd need to reread the passage to remind myself of exactly what flocks and herds they had available at the time when they were complaining about not having meat. Um, Why were they not? I I, I guess I don't know the answer to your question. Um, Were the flocks and herds mostly for sacrifices? Was there some reason why they weren't eating them in the desert at the time? Was it less about the flocks and herds they had and more about complaining about the manna that they did have that God was providing for them? Um, How many flocks, how many animals did they have available at the time? I I don't know the answer to those questions off the top of my head, but those are the things that I would be juggling and thinking about and asking questions about. And then I would very closely reread the passage where they complained about not having meat and just closely try to pick up on the clues, what was going on there. Um, I wish I could give you a better answer, Carolyn. That's where I would start. Uh, Jose Burgos says, Ricky Gervais says that if all scientific knowledge and religion were erased, science would eventually be rediscovered, but not God. Thoughts? Um, Several thoughts on that. Uh, The first thought is, and what does that prove? This is one of those like gotcha statements that you hear from people that doesn't actually mean much of anything because Christianity has never purported to be a religion that can be fully discovered through like human investigation of natural causes. It's never purported to be that. So it proves nothing to say that you wouldn't discover it in the way you didn't initially discover it. That that's that that doesn't say that. Now, would God be rediscovered? If you could erase everyone's knowledge of God, absolutely God would be rediscovered. People would be out there theorizing about God's existence and arguing from the a bunch of different reasons to believe God exists and they and they've done this many times in many ways. Uh, but would the would the, the the truth about like say Abraham be rediscovered? Isaac, would scripture somehow come back together? No, not in this hypothetical where it was all just suddenly erased, not apart from a miraculous work of God, would it come together? The point is that this just doesn't prove anything. Ricky Gervais is just it's a it's just a silly gotcha statement. Now, there's more I can say on this, which is that science, it rose in human history not by default. It's not like humans were always going to come up with a scientific method and then start to push the boundaries of it and understand science better and better. It could have have happened much, much longer in the past. It arose when it did, partly because Christianity provided an environment and a philosophy that science could be built upon. Now, some might say science has no philosophy, and that's simply not true. You can literally go get your PhD in the philosophy of science if you want. Like this, it, science has a philosophy, and scientists and physicists who rip on philosophy don't understand. They, they are they are just fundamentally under, misunderstanding like the basics of philosophy. Um, and 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 I'm not alone in saying this. Okay, this just talk to any philosophers out there, any of them. Just pick one, and they're going to tell you the same thing. Um, yeah, so science is based on certain philosophical principles that science doesn't give you. So it's it's based on the idea that, that we live in an orderly universe. Does science prove you live in an orderly universe? No, it relies on the idea that you do. So that when you pro- provide an experiment and you do it over and over again, that that proves that that's just how that thing happens, right? That this is how the universe functions by sort of order and design. Um, and if you might feel that the word design is too loaded, but let's just say order and, um, structure, um, and integrated systems. So, so that, that is something that Christianity gives a strong support, gives strong support for. I don't look at mercury on Christianity and think that mercury is exhibiting control over people's fates and souls because of its position in the sky. No, Christianity debunks that and says, no, that's just something God made. God is the one in control. These are just his creations. The sun, the moon, the stars—they're just things God made. They're not deities. It's not a magical evaluation of the universe. Even in the Bible, when miracles happen, they're seen as miracles, not as normal happenings. Miracles, not as normal happenings. And so, the the there's others. Uh, Tom Holland wrote a book on this. We're not on this specifically, but related to this about sort of the impact of Christianity in in our world today. And so, Ricky Gervais' statement is odd because. Science doesn't just arise in a vacuum. It came with philosophical presuppositions that were supplied by Christianity and an environment that Christianity very much helped push forward. Does that mean it's the only way science could come around? I'm not saying that. I'm just talking, talking about what did happen in history. So here's the oddity of this statement is it's very powerful to people. If all scientific knowledge and religion were erased, science would eventually be rediscovered, but not not religion, not God. It feels powerful but it's, it's completely powerless. It doesn't, you're not saying anything. And what you're saying is neglecting the actual history of how science came about. Um, Yeah, it's, it's ultimately meh. (laughs) In my opinion, in my opinion, Uh, we we get these kinds of questions, you know, Christopher Hitchens asked a question as he was a popular atheist, you know, um, name one thing that a, that a Christian moral act that a Christian can do that an atheist cannot do. And he felt like, he told others to ask this question and he asked it in all his debates and he felt like it was a real trump card. And even though you can't answer the question that loving God is the moral thing, it was it was a silly question because it doesn't prove anything. What if atheists can do all the same moral things a Christian can? Like, what does that mean? We're not saying Christians are superhumans with abilities and powers other humans don't have. We're not saying they they have vocal capacities to say words others can't say or physical capacities to move in ways others can't move so that we have to like it's just a weird question that confuses people it reminds me of when bilbo baggins said something along the lines of like i like less than half of you i know half of you less than half of you half as well as i ought and like less than half of you something i don't remember what he said i still can't because it's just like it's funny and it's a zinger but it's hard to figure out what he even is saying (laughs) It's kind of the same thing with this particular um, statement from Ricky Gervais. So I hope that this has helped. If you're a non-believer, um, I I know you see me uh, up here like some guy on the internet and there's enough there's a lot of fakery on the internet. I'm a hundred percent genuine here. I really believe Christianity's true. I believe there's evidence for it, both in from realms of like physics and science and stuff like that that can support this as well as philosophy and fulfillment of scripture and the uh, historical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus, giving strong indication that that is the best explanation uh, for what happened. I think that there's also the transformation in my own life. And I, I would want you to know the same hope and love and truth that there is in Jesus Christ that I have. I'm a, I'm a fallible person. I'm as, as as fallible as you, whether you consider that insulting or not. <laughs> um, but, but I do believe that, Christianity is actually true. And I hope, hope, hope that something we've said here today points you in that direction. So thank you guys. Let me uh, close this in prayer. Lord, thank you so much for the truth. We pray that you'd help us to know it, to communicate it better. We pray for anybody who's watching this now or will watch it later who might be a skeptic that they would just be a little bit more open. to the truth of christianity that you answer their confusion their sincere questions their real challenges that you point them towards the light of the gospel of christ and your goodness and we ask lord for believers who are watching who might be doubting that they would be strengthened in their faith in christ that they would see that in their time of doubt that they come out with stronger faith and we ask lord for um every believer that's listening that we would just be, and myself has concluded that we would just be better and better at evangelism and sharing the truth of Christ and defending the gospel and not just internet quarrels, but, but actually evangelism through, uh, through sharing the truth in Jesus name. Amen.